Well, it's been a blessing to be here so far this morning. Thank you for your warm welcome, and uh, it's been good to sit in the Sunday school class and worship with you. It's uh, definitely, definitely been a blessing being here. I, uh, I trust that the rest of the service can be a blessing for you and that we can uh, learn and, and grow together. I know, I know I have connections with Kevin and Rachel. We spent time at their place in, uh, in Puerto Rico years ago. And like Kevin said, Philip and Dana, we've had good connections with them. And, um, actually Rachel was my second cousin. So that's, that's a, a family connection. Um, but, uh, I will say that uh, this is the first time I've been here, but uh, Philip has, has given me good reports about the church here at Mobile Memorial. And uh, so I just want to bless you in that and encourage you that, um, that keep serving the Lord. Be a witness and a testimony right here where God has placed you. And um, God will do amazing things if we can just fulfill his will in our lives and, and have a heart that, that wants to do that. So, so I bless you in that. I did not spend an hour or two during Sunday school. Well, there wasn't an hour or two to do that, to uh, go over notes and refresh my memory on, on the message. But I trust that, um, that you can be blessed and that we can learn together. The message this, this morning is redeemer or accuser. Redeemer or accuser, and this is, I'm really not going to say anything new that hasn't already been taught because it's, it's right out of the Bible, and, and you have this in your, in your possession, and you read this, and so um, I'm going to refer to some familiar stories, maybe some that are not as familiar, but uh, it's really nothing new, but I think that so many times that we can so easily not really understand what God wants us to understand and the depths and how, how crucial it is for us to understand some of these things as we walk with God and to really know what it means in our, in our walk with God. Um, recently, in the last number of months, I've been so impacted by the foundation of faith and how important faith is. And, and, and we, we, we know that concept. I mean, so we say, well, we're people of faith, okay? So we know what we mean, and, and that is so true. And yet, so often, we live as people that are not of faith. If you understand what I mean, we can so we can so quickly lose our faith, which is our foundation, and then our world is just blown to pieces because our faith is 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 shaken, and we know we must be so careful with that. Two passages that I'm going to especially refer to is uh, John nine and also Joel two, and I believe we'll look at Joel chapter two first. Redeemer and acu or accuser. I want us to think about these two things and how how they go hand in hand. We tend to be one or the other. We I think I think we will be one or the other. In our flesh, accuser comes naturally. That's who I am in my flesh. That's my natural go-to. Is I become an accuser. The Bible is a book of redemption. We 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 know that. It's the gospel. The gospel story is redemption. Even in judgment, God's purpose was and is redemption. So we can read a lot about judgment in Scripture. We see it with the children of Israel. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. Just a lot of judgment that, that happened and took place. 
there's there's judgment that happened in in the New Testament, um, even you know with uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira. You know they were they they were they there was immediate judgment. I mean they they died just just like that. There was just judgment, and yet God's the whole reason for judgment. God wants to bring redemption. Jesus is a redeemer. We know that. But let's remember that key thought. Jesus is Redeemer. The devil, on the other hand, is the accuser. The devil is the accuser. He is the opposite of Redeemer. Satan abandons, deserts, forsakes, lies, destroys, and condemns. He brings irritation and conflict, a complete lack of peace. That is the devil. That is the opposite of Redeemer. As little Christ, so as Christians, we're, we're, we're little Christ's, we must choose to be redemptive. What does it mean to live redeemed and bring redemption to those around us, especially those closest to me, my family, my church, neighbors? Do I bring peace, perfect peace, that flows down from the Father above? And as I considered that thought, I was reminded of a song, some words written by Edward H. Bickerseth, I guess is how you say his name, wrote these words. And this is this gives us a, a picture into who how, who Jesus is and how He wants us to um, understand redemption and and live redeemed and bringing redemption to those around us. Peace, perfect peace, in this dark world of sin. So it, it asks a question. It keeps asking questions that we go through. In this dark world of sin, how can there be peace, perfect peace in this dark world of sin? And then it answers: the blood of Jesus whispers peace within. That's redemption. Peace, perfect peace, by thronging duties pressed. I mean, I'm busy. I mean, I, you know, Monday morning's coming. I mean, today's not going to be long enough. I mean, I just wish I could relax more. I mean, I, we got to go. I mean, we got a lot of responsibilities, right? You, you know what? You know what I mean. So, so how can there be peace, perfect peace? To do the will of Jesus, this is rest. This is rest. That's redemption. Peace, perfect peace, with sorrows surging round. I mean, everywhere we look, there's pain, there's suffering, there's sorrow everywhere. I mean, you, 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 you've experienced this in your own life, and you can look next door and see it, and it just doesn't, it's not far. It's just, how could there be peace, perfect peace? Find my spot here. With sorrows surging round, on Jesus' bosom, naught but calm is found. Am I spending time with Jesus? On Jesus' bosom. That's where there's calm. Even in the midst of sorrows around. That's redemption. Peace, perfect peace. With loved ones far away. I mean, I wish I could bring them close. I, I wish I could I wish I could keep them right here. And that could you could be referring to miles, or that could be referring to those that have chosen to walk away from God. I don't know what all he was thinking here. But in Jesus' keeping, we are safe and they. Can I surrender them to Almighty God? That's redemption. Peace, perfect peace. Our future all unknown? I don't know what's tomorrow. I don't know what's next week. I don't know what's... The future can look scary in a lot of ways, right? Our future all unknown. Jesus we know and he is on the throne. That's redemption. Peace, perfect peace. Death shadowing us and ours. How can we be at peace when there's, there's so much death? 
it can be right in our right in our back door. Jesus has vanquished death and all its powers because of redemption. It is enough. Earth struggles soon shall cease, and Jesus calls us to heaven's perfect peace. Jesus calls us to his perfect redemption. I was reminded of Matthew 6, verse 10. Thy kingdom come, and I'm, and I'm interjecting you, on, you, you, you recognize this right into the Lord's prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. What does it mean for God's kingdom to come? What does it mean when I pray that God's kingdom come in earth as it is in heaven? What are we saying? For God's kingdom to come. When we are little Christ's, as we are called to be as, as Christians, when we're little Christ, we bring redemption and God's kingdom comes to earth through, through us, right? As we interact with those around us. God's redemption comes, God's kingdom comes to earth through us. So when you, when you pray that, be sure that you are allowing God to use you to bring that to pass. Don't pray it if you're not, open to the idea because God wants to use you and I to bring his kingdom to earth. The natural man is an accuser. I've said that already. Think about Adam and Eve back in the very beginning. Adam accused Eve when he sinned. And we can see in, in, in Genesis chapter three. As soon as there was sin, Adam turned into an accuser. They were in a perfect place. There was God had had there was it's complete perfection, and yet as soon as there was sin, Adam accused Eve. It was her fault. She did that. There was accusing because they had chosen to follow the accuser. Cain accused Abel when it was his own guilt. In First John three verse twelve it says, "Not as Cain, who was of that wicked one and slew his brother." And then it says, and wherefore slew he him? Why did he do it? Why did he kill Why did he kill Abel? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. Because of his sin, he didn't kill Abel because of Abel's sin. He killed Abel because of his own sin. Abel was the good guy. Abel was the one following the Lord. And yet, when he sinned, he joined hands with the accuser, with the devil. And so it only makes sense that he would act like the devil and become an accuser. And he accused Abel. The children of Israel accused Moses because of their lack of faith. In each of these early cases in Scripture, God dealt severely with them. God did not take these things lightly. And we understand that, obviously so. This is direct combat, the, the, the devil and this is accuser and redeemer. I mean, it's two, it's two different camps. God's not going to take these accusations lightly. I have found in my own life and experience that when I am guilty, it's easy for, for me to become an accuser. Have you ever thought of that before? <laughs> Not about me, about you. <laughs> you won't have to think long and you'll, you'll, be able to, you'll be able to think that about me too. But um, don't, just don't. When I'm guilty, I, I become an accuser. When my faith is weak or gone... I become an accuser. Think about Mark 4, verse, verse 40, and I'm just jumping in. It's a familiar story. We, we, we know this 
we know this uh, account in, uh, in Jesus. says He said unto them, let's see, I don't know if I have this quoted word for word here. He said unto them, why are ye so fearful? And this is when they were in the boat. I should just turn to, um, I should just turn to Mark 4. Make sure I'm getting this right. Okay, so in the story, you remember the uh, you remember the story. They they got in the boat and they said, "Let's pass over to the other side." Um, verse thirty-seven. There arose a great storm of wind, and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, speaking of Jesus, asleep on a pillow. And they awake him and say unto him, "Master, carest thou not that we perish?" Notice, notice what they were saying and what, what they were um, interjecting into, into what they were saying to Jesus. They were accusers. This was, this was them in their flesh. They were, they were acting like the devil, if you will. And Jesus took that seriously. He says, they said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind and said unto the sea, Peace be still. He brought peace. He brought redemption to the situation. That's who Jesus is. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. And then he turned to them and he said, Why are you so, so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? He didn't give them any slack at all. He said, You were, you were acting like the devil. You were being like, like Satan himself. You were, you were being an accuser. And when we're when I am an accuser, I have no faith. My faith is gone. Like that's that's the accuser. Now, before we think we're being too hard on the disciples, and and it does seem like you know Jesus was he was cutting to the chase. I mean, it seems like he didn't really give him much of a chance, but it was he was just helping them to recognize the seriousness of this accusation and this lack of faith. Satan is the accuser. Jesus is the redeemer. I find that it is when I become an accuser, it's when, like the disciples in Mark 4, I don't recognize the power of the master. They didn't recognize the power of the master. They didn't, they didn't know that, that Jesus actually had it all under control. Jesus wasn't going to drown in that boat. When I don't recognize the power of the master, therefore... I am faithless, and I desperately try to take things into my own hands and rationalize things in my own mind that I become like the accuser Satan. I'm going to look at uh, Joel chapter 2, and I want us just to think who God is as Redeemer. And I'm going to, I'm going to start in verse 10, and I'm kind of jumping in here. But let's, uh, let's just think about who God is, and we'll, we'll pull out several things here from, from Joel 2. Think about God as a redeemer. Recently, before I read this, recently I read an article about a new space balloon that carries you to the cosmos. This is what it says. Only 600 astronauts have observed the curvature of the Earth from space. And that number will soon jump astronomically. I don't know if I can say all these names exactly right, but the Zephalto, a luxury, highly French pressurized capsule, is boarding next year. And so this, this article was just in, in May, just two months ago. 
The Zavalto rises at a speed of 3.2 feet per second. The ascent lasts an hour and a half until it reaches 16 miles, 16 miles up, about 85,000 feet or about three times higher than commercial aircraft. So this is, this is getting you up there. The capsule is limited to six passengers. Oh, at an altitude of 16 miles, you are above 98% of the atmosphere and can clearly see the curvature of the Earth. It's blue halo and the stars, and yes, the blackness of space. So we have six passengers. The entire voyage takes six hours, three hours stationary. So I guess an hour and a half up, an hour and a half back, but you get to hang out up there for three hours. You will be served the Earth's best culinary experiences with vintage and rare beverages. Let's just say anything you want. To hold one of these six seats requires $11,000 down payment with a total price of $137,000 per person. So you better start saving up if you want to take this ride. Sell the farm or something. Before each flight, there's a two-day preparation at the French headquarters. In groups and individually, each passenger spends some time with a psychologist. Why a psychologist? A psychologist? Really? He goes back, only 600 people have gone above this altitude and without exception, all have a powerful emotional experience. The emotions seem to be linked to seeing the smallness of earth surrounded by the never-ending darkness of space. And I really think as I consider the, the reality of this and, and what this secular man understands after they've sent these men to space and they've looked back and they recognize the smallness of who they themselves are, I think what is happening is they're getting just a bit of a view of who God is. As God looks upon this earth and the smallness of space, and let's see what some of them have, uh, have said. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man to walk on the moon, said, if all world leaders could see what I saw, and this is, this is tremendous, this is impactful, there would be no more war. What is it about getting a viewpoint of God God looking upon earth, God looking upon you and I that would say that we would no longer be accusers. It's really difficult to have war without having a bunch of accusers. The devil, a lot of little devils. God does not, not, does not want a lot of little devils. God wants little Christ. I'm going to start referring to us as little redeemers. God's intention is that we as his people are little redeemers. Opposite of accusers. Something about recognizing who I really am. So, so very small against the vastness of space. To look at the earth and see it in a small way as God does. A small insignificant planet. We can only realize, as did Neil Armstrong, astronaut, first human to walk on the moon. And he says this. It suddenly struck me that that tiny pea, pretty and blue, was the earth. I put my thumb and shut one eye, and my thumb blotted out the planet earth. I didn't feel like a giant. I felt very, very small, he says. When I first looked back at earth, standing on the moon, he says, I cried. And Neil Armstrong, I, I don't, I, I, obviously I haven't met him, but I, I think he was a man's man. I mean, to be able to, to be able to 
go into space and I, you know he he understood a lot of stuff like he wasn't no he wasn't no wimp and yet when when he experienced that he broke down and he cried he wept he was just he was humbled he did not feel like a giant he was humbled can i get a picture can i see those around me can i see the earth can i see myself for how god sees me the accuser is proud. The quote that says, if all world leaders could see what I saw, there would be no more war. And thinking about that, when I see the smallness of me and the, immense, and the immenseness of space, let alone almighty God, God says, I inhabit eternity. And yet God wants to dwell in the humble and contrite heart, Isaiah says. I can no longer be an accuser. I see a redeemer. Redeemer God. So let's look at Joel 2, verse, starting with verse 10, and just see a bit who God is. And you'll note, well, I'm not going to read these verses, but the beginning of the chapter 2 is, is a picture of judgment, just a, a picture of terror, a picture of, of God's judgment. And, and God's, God's judgment is something that none of us actually want to see. The judgment of God and the wrath of God is, is as full and complete and as terrorizing as the wonderful, powerful love and mercy of God is, is, is great and, and kind and gentle and long-suffering. So we do not want to see the wrath of God. But that's the, first, that's the context here in the beginning. And so I'm kind of jumping in here in the middle. But in verse 10, I'll read it. The earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and the moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. This is judgment. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible. Who can abide it? And he's just saying, who can stand? I mean, this is impossible. We're, we're done. It's a hopeless case. Who can stand against this? Judgment of God. Verse 12. Therefore also now saith the Lord, this, this must be our response as we consider God, who God is, and, what, and us not wanting to face his wrath. He says, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and none of this can happen without tremendous humility as we recognize who God is and we recognize who we are. Verse 13. And rend your heart, not your garment, and turn unto the Lord your God. This is what we must do. And I stopped mid-verse mid there. But now we're going to start in. And he all of a sudden jumps right in here. And he starts speaking about who God is. Remember, who can stand? And this is, must be our response. Because this is who God is. For he is gracious. The middle of verse 13. For he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil. This is our Redeemer. This is not an accuser. This is our Redeemer. This is Almighty God. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him. Why would an Almighty God leave a blessing for us? Why would God do that for me? Even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, Gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breast. Let the bridegroom go forth of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. 
Let the priest and the minister of the Lord weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should roll over them. Wherefore should they say in the, among the people, Where is their God? God, don't let this happen. We, we beg you. Verse 18, Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Why do I deserve the pity of an almighty God? Yea, the, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith, these blessings. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen. But I will remove far off from you the northern army and will drive them into a land barren and desolate with his face before the, toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea and his stink shall come up and his ill savor shall come up because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice for the Lord will do great things. And I just, I just, it's this, this repetition of the Lord doing great things. Well, a great God does great things. It should be expected. Verse 22. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, and the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. Remember, we're speaking of a redeemer. This is who God is. Just pouring out blessing, giving just the good things of, of that God wants to give to us. These are physical blessings. And I will restore to you the years that the locusts have, have eaten. And it referred to this in the first part of this chapter that we did not read, of the, the locusts just bringing great destruction. So he says there, there was destruction in judgment, but he said, I will, I will bring restoration. I will bring redemption. This is God. Uh, that the locust hath eaten, the canker worm and the caterpillar and the pommel worm, my great army which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Redemption. And praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. This is a redeemer God. And again, we see this repetition. He says the same phrase, two verses in a row there. My people shall never be ashamed. God does not want to bring shame on his people. And it shall come to, to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days, why pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. And the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered, redeemed. For in Mount Zion in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord has said and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. This is God. This is our Redeemer, God. God's highest desire for you, for man, for you and I, is redemption. We think about all these things that we just read about and who God is. And I put down these things in 
in who we should be as little redeemers. And as we relate to our families, we relate to our neighbors, we relate to our church family, to all those around us, very near and abroad, I took these things straight out of here as who God is, and this is who we are to be. God is a redeeming God. He is not the accuser. So what about me? How do I relate? How am I little Christ or little redeemer to those around me? So there's 14 14 things that I just pulled out that I'm just going to go over here real quick. So number one is God is a redeemer. We see that in this passage that I just read. God is redeemer. I must move into every situation, everything that I encounter in life from day to day, I must be redeemer. Am I bringing redemption? Am I being a little redeemer? Number two, gracious. God is gracious. What about me? Am I gracious to my family? Am I gracious to my brothers and sisters at church? Am I gracious to those around me? This is God. Am I gracious? Number three, merciful. Am I merciful? God is a merciful God. So many times we can we can just that merciful one we can we can struggle with so easily. Number four, God is slow to anger. Am I slow to anger? And all this stuff hits home. And this is this is we, we, this is how we must relate to our families. This is how we must relate within our church, within our community. Slow to anger. Number five, great kindness. Do I show great kindness to those who are around me? Is this who I am as a little redeemer? Great kindness. Number six, do I feel pain? Thinking of the, the concept of where it spoke of God as, as it repenteth him, it said. In other words, he, 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 he considers you and it repenteth him of the evil that he would do, the judgment that he might bring. So thinking about that, do I feel pain and sorrow at the thought of the evil sinner facing punishment? It is not God's will that any should perish. So I must never have an attitude, well, their day is coming. They're going to be judged. I wish I could help God out with that one. That, that is not a redeemer. That, is, that attitude, that, that thought is, is, a, is an accuser thought. So do I feel pain and sorrow at the thought of the evil sinner facing punishment? Number seven, compassion. Compassion. Those... My, my children, my family, my church family, those around me. Do I, do I have compassion in my heart for those around me? Number eight, pitying others. It spoke of God as he, he pities us. He pities mankind. Do I, do I have pity for others? Number nine, doing great things through the Spirit of God doing great things through the Spirit of God. And, and, if, and if I am humble, and I do like it says in, in, uh, back in verses 12 and 13, and I turn even to God with all my heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, and rend your heart and not your garment, and turn unto the Lord your God, then I am ready for God to do great things through me, through His Spirit in my life. So we can do great things. And so many times... The small things are the great things. Sometimes them great things are to those in your family, those next door. It may not appear like great things, and yet God wants to do 
great things, the smallest and most mundane things is the great things. Don't ever forget that. That's very important. We, we tend to, it's easy to say, well, yes, I would want to do great things for God. And God says, go ahead. Serve your child. Remember that glass of water? Go ahead. Your husband, your wife, a brother in the church. Yeah, go ahead, get started. And we say, well, yeah, God, great things. You know, the great things. No, it's the small things. That's the great things that God wants to do through you and I. Number 10, helping others be fruitful. Do I help others to be fruitful? Is that, is that what I'm all about? Is that my life? That it, it doesn't say helping me to be fruitful. It's not, it's not saying that, that I'm, I'm trying to make sure that I'm you know, very producing and, and am I helping others? Am I first focused on helping others to be fruitful? Is that, is that my desire? Number 11, giving much physical blessing to others as we see God in this chapter, Joel chapter 2. Much physical blessing, pouring out rain, pouring out oil and, and, and wine and the, and the crops and the, God just giving physical blessings. Is that my desire, giving much physical blessings to others? Number 12, restoring others, restoration. And of course, as we consider mercy and graciousness and kindness and long-suffering and gentleness, that brings restoration to others, a redeeming God, little redeemers as people being God's little redeemers bringing restoration to others. Those that have been beaten, battered, and maybe have faced the judgments of God because of their sin, and yet God calls us to bring restoration. No shaming others. We, we see that in here as well. Not shaming others. Again, that little accuser that wants to come out in my flesh, I just want to, well, they just need a little shame, right? No. God says, that is not, that is not who I am. Not shaming others. And then, then the last one I have is bringing deliverance to others. Bringing deliverance. Now move to a passage in uh, John 9. John 9, another familiar story. We're just going to look at, at this real quick. And just, just again, we're going to go back and look at, at the disciples and, and who they were, they were trying to understand who God is and was and Jesus as he walked this earth and Jesus was teaching them. And so what a, um, what a blessing. But so, so we're not being hard on the disciples here. We're just, we're just learning as they were learning. We see Jesus' disciples become accusers in this little story here as well John 9 verses the first just the first five verses and Jesus passed by and he saw a man and this is a familiar story which was blind from his birth and his disciples asked him saying master who did sin this man or his parents that he was born blind do you notice the accuser coming out right there I mean they see this blind guy and say well God so whose fault is that is that his fault or is that his mom and dad's fault like that's that's an accusation like whose fault is it that's our natural man is to want to figure out whose fault it is. Somebody, I, I got to accuse somebody of this. We just, we want to point fingers so quick. And they, they were just being, they were just being people. Notice Jesus' answer in verse three. Jesus answered, neither hath this man sinned nor his parents. Neither. Who said it had to be somebody's fault? It wasn't anybody's fault. It's not their fault. It's not theirs. Just put the, put the accuser down. Just, just that we're not going there. And then notice what Jesus says. He says, 
but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. But that the works of God should be made just for the glory of God. That's why. Did you ever think that God allows things to be happening that so many times we're like, oh, well, whose fault is that? Well, 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 who didn't do right over here? Well, what about that? What about, what if God just wants to be God? What if God just simply wants to get glory through a situation because a boat is out in the middle of the waters and this storm come up and, and God wants to get glory. And so God allows these things to happen. God allowed this man to be born blind so that God could be glorified. Verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me. And while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. And as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And we know that, that that's what God wants for us. The redeemer, little redeemers, the light of the world. Two quick points here. The accuser thinks it has to be someone's fault. The accuser thinks it has to be someone's fault. But can God be God? I think so often I don't let God be God. Why? Because it goes back to faith. Because I have no faith. It takes faith to believe that God wanted to be glory out of a man being blind. Like that just, that it goes against the grain. We don't, we don't like to see that. And we could remember Mark 4, what we talked about already. The disciples didn't know God could be God. They were still learning. I'm reminded of Hebrews where it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Do I have enough faith to believe that God can? God can right the situations and, and God, God will so that he can be glorified and our faith can be strengthened. I must plead for God's forgiveness for my lack of faith. Jesus says it's not anyone's fault. We don't need any accusations. This bad thing, as we see it, only happens so that redemption can happen and God can be glorified. And number two, the accuser doesn't choose to trust. The accuser doesn't choose to trust. This is foundational to our salvation. If I do not choose to trust other people around me, I will not be trusted by other people around me. This is a, this is a pretty foundational thing. If I do not choose to trust those around me, I will not be trusted by those around me. Choosing not to trust those around me reveals a lack of trust in God. Think about that. And I think we could, we could liken it to just as in, in 1 John 4, God says, well, you don't, you don't love your brother. Well, you can't say that you love God if you don't love your brother. And I think so often we like to say, well, yeah, I, I trust God. Yeah, I trust God. And yet we, we do not show a trust and a confidence in an almighty God when I refuse to trust those that God has placed in my life, my, my parents, my church leaders, my, the government that God has placed me under, um, the authorities that God has placed in my life. How can I say that I trust in God who I haven't seen if I don't trust my brothers and sisters that God has placed around me. We could go on in John chapter 9, but we won't. But we can see how the, that the scribes and Pharisees continued to accuse Jesus. And what did Jesus do? Just in chapter 8, he said, you're of your father, the devil. Well, that's who their father was. They were sons of the devil. And so they lived like the devil and they continued to, to be 
accusers. We want to be little redeemers. I'm reminded of Revelation 12, verse 10, And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength, and the kingdom of our God, and the power of his Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. We do not want to join in with Satan, the accuser. We want to be little redeemers. So this morning, am I a little redeemer? Am I bringing redemption to those around me? Thy will be done, thy kingdom come right here on earth through you and I as little redeemers. God bless you.